Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. As it was, they had brought incalculable suffering. They had overdosed him on sensuality until his mind teetered on madness. Then they'd initiated him into experiences that his nerves still convulsed to recall. They had called it pleasure, and perhaps they'd meant it. Perhaps not. It was impossible to know with these minds. They were so hopelessly, flawlessly ambiguous. They recognized no principles of reward and punishment by which he could hope to win some respite from their tortures, nor were they touched by any appeal for mercy. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie, and I'm back with another book review. And no, it's not Stephen King's Firestarter that's still on the back burner, pun fully intended. It was put there so I could finish up the book I helped write, now playing podcasts, underrated movies we recommend. And that project has taken so much of my time the past two years, and this year specifically, that I haven't had the time the Stephen King reviews demand, especially with his lengthy novels. But if you can permit me a bit more time to work on those, how about a review of a second horror author I've read for most of my life? A man who owes his entire career to a few words from King. I'm of course referring to Clive Barker, and today I'll be discussing that author and reviewing his story, The Hellbound Heart. How does that relate to Stephen King? In 1984, at the World Fantasy Convention, King said, I have seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. Or words to that effect. Depending where you read the quote, it might have been slightly different, but those are the words that were printed on the cover of Clive Barker's book. And with such a bold proclamation coming from the reigning king of horror, it changed the life of Barker forever. I mean, who was Barker at that time? In 1984, Barker was 32 years old. He was born in Liverpool and spent much of his adult life working in the theater and writing his own plays. However, he became inspired to write a horror anthology, his first horror prose, which Barker described to Fangoria magazine as a, quote, celebration of perversity, unquote. After writing five of these stories, he approached a UK publisher who agreed to print them, and thus was born Barker's first published material, The Books of Blood. The stories were broken up into three volumes and published in the UK in 84 and 85. Their release was met with what Barker described as a, quote, smothering shrug. That is, until Stephen King got involved. It was these early stories that King read and caused his declaration. In Barker's own words, he became a, quote, overnight success and got a six-figure publishing deal with Simon & Schuster. His Books of Blood received a paperback release in the U.S., of course, it is King's writing, his quote in a huge font on the front cover, that I think sold those books more than Barker's writing in the pages. It was 1987 when I first heard that quote. Age 13, I'd been reading Stephen King's books for a few years by then, and seen his movies some as well. To hear that quote felt like the passing of the mantle, 
King stating his time of horror innovation was over, and it was time for the new blood. It helped that during that time, King was reducing his output, going through some private substance abuse issues he wouldn't talk about for several years. It seemed to me that one author was phasing out and another arriving. I, like I dare say the majority of people, heard about Barker and King's quote when I saw the trailer for Barker's directorial debut, Hellraiser. That movie was released in 1987. I didn't see it until it hit video, but that quote stuck with me, and I went to the bookstore and immediately began to bathe in the books of blood. Barker was the right author for me at the right time. In adolescent, I began to seriously expand my view of the world, and I was becoming interested in sex. Barker's work was sometimes gory, sometimes fun, and sometimes very erotic. I always felt, and I still feel, that King weaves a good horror story. But when it comes to the Grand Guinal, he pulls back. There's pain and there's death, but in King's work, the violence is often like a 15-second orgasm after a two-hour marathon of sex. Barker's work, however, reveled in the gore, describing it in detail. And sex. By the late 80s, King had written a sex scene or two, including one infamous one in It, but they were always a bit cold. Barker wrote about sex in a way I'd previously seen only in the pages of Penthouse Letters. He shied away from no word. He described the sex organs in as much detail as he described vivisections. His writing sparked my imagination and my libido, as sex and death were the two taboos on which my teenage years focused. I read Barker's work for years, though admittedly never as much as I did King's. Many books, like Weave World and the first Aberat volume, I'd read some, put down, and never return. But others I devoured. I am to this day a collector of Barker's books, hunting down each one in hardcover as well as several signed special editions. So through the 80s and 90s, I watched Barker's movies, but more, I read his books. In doing so, I learned something about Barker's writing. King labeled him the future of horror, but that didn't seem to be what Barker wanted. Before Books of Blood, he hadn't written much horror, and his future work seemed to be more fantasy than horror, more Lord of the Rings, less A Nightmare on Elm Street. Barker's horror works always excited me. His fantasy? Not so much. The best way I can describe it is Barker's ideas thrill me, but they only seem to get me 90% of the way to where I want to go. His fiction felt like it did push limits and open doors in ways I'd never experienced with any other author. King's fiction largely consisted of magical person in an ordinary town. Barker's teased universes of strangeness and perversity and pain and magic. I wanted to explore Barker's worlds, but it's like Barker was a great travel agent. He described crazed realities, but he'd either leave them mysterious or, sometimes worse, he'd take me there and I'd find it not to be nearly as inventive and surreal as promised. Barker's imagination draws me in like a moth to a flame, but I'm ultimately left burned and disappointed. So often, I drifted away from the author's prose, invariably brought back due to some movie release or conversation with a friend. When I was an undergraduate, my final thesis for my English minor was to be an in-depth analysis of a book, any book I wanted. I chose Clive Barker's Imagica. By that point, I was 21, and Barker had lived with me off and on for eight years. In my imagination, of course, not literally. I also championed Nightbreed, based on Barker's short story Cabal, as an underrated classic film in the now-playing book, writing about all three cuts and explaining why that movie deserves another look. 
I had originally selected Rawhead Rex as an underrated film, then realized it wasn't one I could recommend. But I'm not here to discuss Cabal, La Magica, Rawhead Rex, or Barker's Books of Blood. This isn't the start of a major Clive Barker review series. Lord knows I have many more King books to finish, about 70 of them, before I ever think of tackling another author's entire bibliography. No, today's podcast is prompted by a review I'm co-hosting over at Books and Nacho's sister podcast, Now Playing. For our fall donation drive, Stuart, Jacob, and I are reviewing all the Hellraiser films, and I thought it was a great time to discuss Barker's source material for the first Hellraiser movie, his novella, The Hellbound Heart. While, as an author, I overall prefer King to Barker, nothing King has ever written, and none of his cinematic adaptations have gotten me as excited as Barker's film Hellraiser. It's worlds, it's Cenobites, it's perversion. Nothing I've read of King's hits my fanboy sweet spot the way Hellraiser does. I have Cenobite statues, a high-end puzzle box replica, every release of the movie and its sequels on DVD, Blu-ray, the soundtracks in digital and vinyl, and many times, I've even toyed with a Hellraiser tattoo. Of course that fandom also spread to the source material The Hellbound Heart. And contrary to popular belief, the short story was not in one of Barker's books of blood, though it shares the DNA of that collection, as The Hellbound Heart is a shorter tale full of sex and gore. But The Hellbound Heart was first published in the anthology Night Visions 3, edited by George R.R. R. Martin, released in the spring of 1986, not all that long before Hellraiser went into production as a film. The book was released as a standalone title in 1988, capitalizing on Hellraiser's success. If that turnaround time from publication to screen seems short, that's the result of Barker's ambition to take his newfound fame and turn it into a directing gig. Fueled by disappointment in the two movies already based off his work, Transmutations, originally titled Underworld, and Rawhead Rex, Barker had been going to Hollywood since 1985, meeting with studios and pitching ideas for stories. Barker had done a few experimental films, Salome and The Forbidden, which were eventually released on DVD, and the less said about them, the better. Now he hoped to direct his first feature film, based on his short story, The Last Illusion. Barker fans know, but the rest of you may not, that story would eventually be adapted to film in the mid-90s called Lord of Illusion. But Barker's vision for a film was too grand and too expensive for an unproven director. But during his meetings, he was introduced to the man who would become Hellraiser's producer, Christopher Figg. Figg had worked on several films and offered Barker some advice. In order to get the backing he wanted for Lord of Illusion, Figg said Barker needed first a showreel, a movie that could be made at a very low cost. He told Barker to, quote, write a story with just three people in a house that could be filmed cheaply on weekends. Barker took that to heart, the Hellbound Heart, a story that has three main characters, and then a host of demons, and the story rarely leaves the house. In an interview with Starburst Magazine, issue 110, Barker said, quote, For me, Hellraiser was a chance to see if I could put what I felt I was putting onto the page onto the screen, to form a narrative that would allow me imaginative latitude with the visuals, but which wouldn't be too large in terms of set pieces. The only way to do this was to write the novella with the specific intention of filming it, this was the first and only time that I have done that, but it was useful in that I worked through a lot of the visual problems in the novella, and the final screenplay didn't take that long to draft. End quote. So what Barker wrote, and then published, was his first film, 
only written in prose instead of a standard screenplay format. And as you might expect, with such a fast turnaround and a story written to be a screenplay, the book and the movie are very close in nearly every respect. Sure, the movie has a homeless guy the book skips, but in my mind, it's rare that a story is adapted to screen so faithfully. And I'll admit, I first read this novella in 1990, and by then I'd seen Hellraiser dozens of times. I've reread the novel five or six times in the past 35 years, but every time I pictured the movie in my head, I read the book like it was a novelization instead of true source material. This time, I put out of my mind, as much as possible, any images from the movie. Gone are visions of Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, and Ashley Lawrence. Also gone are the iconic representations of the Cenobites from the film. I wanted to read this as blank as possible and see how Barker originally envisioned these characters. I even tried to constantly remind myself that these are English characters living in London and to separate myself from the American accents that the characters often have in the movie. Now, while I did read this book as prose initially, just working hard mentally to separate the words on the page from the movie I've seen so many times, there are audiobooks of this I listened to after that help separate it even further. The first version of the Hellbound Heart and audiobook was read by Clive Barker himself, and it is my favorite way to listen to this. Hearing the author's own words, plus, honestly, his British accent, really helped drive home the locale of this as a London picture, and I really enjoyed hearing Barker perform the words of the Cenobites, moving far away from what's seen on screen, even though this abridged narration came out in 1988, the year after Hellraiser was released. While this was originally released on two audio cassettes, Audible does have it available. The only downside is it is abridged. Audible also has an unabridged audiobook for The Hellbound Heart, but the narration by Jeffrey Kaffer just didn't grip me nearly as much, and it didn't help me to envision a Hellraiser different than what I saw on screen. Sadly, there isn't a version of the book read by Pinhead star Doug Bradley. It is a shame he does do a lot of audiobook reading. He did an entire Spine Chiller series that you can download and listen to, and there was a lot of horror in there, Poe, Lovecraft, Dickens, but no Barker. I think hearing him read that would be second only to Barker's own narration. Once I heard Barker's reading and really paid attention to his prose, I noticed more differences from page to screen than I ever had before. And they start at the very beginning. The first chapter of The Hellbound Heart functions as a prologue, taking place about one year before the rest of the book. In this section, we meet Frank Cotton, the first of the book's three main characters. Frank is a 29-year-old nihilistic, self-centered hedonist. He traveled the world, had every type of sex, and ingested every type of drug. And he'd been left unfulfilled. Of Frank, Barker writes, quote, He had encountered nothing in his life, no person, no state of mind or body, he wanted sufficiently to suffer even passing discomfort for. End quote. At the start of chapter one, we find Frank taking residence in a house left to him and his brother Rory by their grandparents. The house was unoccupied, and Frank had gone there to be alone to solve a puzzle he hoped would reward him with new levels of experience. 
Through his travels, he'd heard rumors of, quote, a pleasure dome where those who had exhausted the trivial delights of the human condition might discover a fresh definition of joy, end quote. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? There were many passages to such a place. Those who saw the movie might think there was just one, a puzzle box. But Barker wrote there were others, an origami exercise used by the Marquis de Sade, a chart hidden by the Vatican also held away. But the way Frank found was, yes, a puzzle box. This idea wasn't unique to Barker when he wrote The Hellbound Heart. Barker had said in an interview, quote, What I like very much is the notion of intellectual puzzles resulting in physical manifestations of one kind or another. End quote. Indeed, he had already told a similar tale once before in the Books of Blood. The short story The Inhuman Condition has a character find a knotted piece of string. The character in that story loves puzzles, and so he unties the knots, not realizing each knot releases a demon. Admittedly, a puzzle box is an upgrade from a piece of string. I imagine Hellraiser might not have done quite so well if, instead of an ornate cube, there was a guy trying to unknot a shoelace. The puzzle box is arguably the biggest iconography of the Hellraiser film. Only the design of Pinhead comes close in popularity. But in the Hellraiser film, the box's origin is a mystery. We see Frank buying it from an enigmatic stranger. The book gives more details. The box was made by a French craftsman named Le Marchand. He was known for making singing birds, but he also made this music box. It was a puzzle box, but if opened, it would play a tinkling tune and open a pathway to that dimension of experience. The box functions in the book much like in the movie. It's difficult to open and requires lots of experimentation. But another difference, in the book, the box is described as somewhat unremarkable. It was just a black box with highly polished sides. I'm not even sure it's a cube. The jeweler who worked on Hellraiser and gave the puzzle box its intricate gold design cannot be given enough credit for turning a plain black box into a memorable, recognizable design. Frank got this box not where I'd expect. It was in Dusseldorf, Germany, from a man named only Kirscher, a drifter and hustler like Frank himself. But Kirscher gave Frank specific instruction on the ritual of opening the box. Not only did Kirscher give hints on how the box itself worked, but also that the supplicant desiring new experience had to follow the ritual. There were offerings of bones, bonbons, and a plate of dove's heads. Also needed is seven days' supply of the Voyager's own urine, as the Cenobites may want a gesture of, quote, self-defilement. None of that has ever been depicted in the Hellraiser films, though the box's origins and Le Marchand were mined by Barker and screenwriter Peter Atkins for the fourth Hellraiser film, Bloodline. While the golden shower idea was also recycled, Barker wrote a similar scene in Rawhead Rex that even made it into the Rawhead Rex movie, perhaps it was wise not to include it in a Hellraiser film. Being covered in one's own urine may be more nauseating than horrific to mass audiences. One final note about Le Marchand's box. When the box opens in the film, we hear a chiming tune play as well as the ringing of bells. I thought these to be the introduction of the film's composer Christopher Young and the sound effects editor John Ireland. But no, the tune is being heard by the characters. It comes from the box. And the bells ring in the distance, heralding the arrival of the Cenobites. Those demons from another dimension are the other bit of Hellraiser iconography 
that virtually everyone recognizes. From the film, that is. The book is a bit different. Firstly, here's something I'll admit to not knowing. Cenobite is not a word Barker invented. It's not a common term for sure, but Merriam-Webster defines Cenobite as a word from the 15th century meaning, quote, a member of a religious group living together in a monastic community, end quote. So yeah, a monk, a nun, a priest, these are all examples of Cenobites. In The Hellbound Heart, the Cenobites are theologians of the Order of the Gash. Barker writes they are, quote, summoned from their experiments in the higher reaches of pleasure to bring their ageless heads into a world of rain and failure, end quote. But Barker did turn Cenobite into a proper noun, capitalizing the C in every usage. This was important, as the demons had no individual names. In both Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser, these Cenobites are background dressing, not main characters. That this would change in sequel films, comics, and books is credit to Barker's original work. He designed tremendous characters who stayed to the shadows. They appeared sparingly, they left the audience wanting more. And that's certainly true in this book. Odds are, everyone listening to this podcast can envision the Cenobites from the movies. Pinhead most specifically, but Chatterer, Butterball, Female Cenobite, and others have found popularity and been realized as action figures and statues. The movie designs are sick, detailed, both majestic and repulsive in equal measure. But the Hellbound Heart doesn't even begin to properly describe the Cenobite's presence. This is honestly a huge gripe I have with Barker's writing as a whole. He'll often tell stories of the unimaginable, but it's like he himself can't imagine it. So many of both his short stories and his novels leave me desperately trying to envision the creatures Barker describes. From the creatures from the Quiddity in Everville, to the Boduevo giant from in the hills the cities, to the night-breeding cabal, Barker's descriptions are perfunctory and frustratingly vague. If you've ever seen Barker's art, his paintings and drawings, they're highly impressionistic. He doesn't even attempt photorealism, so much as lots of lines that convey mood and outline a figure. I feel he writes his monsters just like he paints them, broad strokes that convey mood, but not really definition. The Hellbound Heart has some of Barker's better descriptions, possibly because he wrote this story to be told in a visual medium, yet the book differs greatly from the movie. Of the Cenobites, Barker writes, quote, Scars covered every inch of their bodies, the flesh cosmetically punctured and sliced and infibulated, then dusted down with ash. End quote. They smelled of vanilla, but it didn't mask the stench beneath. They're said to have maimed faces, but what that means I find hard to guess. In the movie Hellraiser, only two Cenobites speak. This wasn't by Barker's design. The costumes for Butterball and Chatterer made speaking, and sometimes even sight, impossible. This led to their lines going mostly to actor Doug Bradley, who had been christened Lead Cenobite. But in the short story, there are five Cenobites. One is named, the Engineer, but the four who visit Frank aren't given names, just brief descriptions. The one we'd call Pinhead is different from page to screen. The demon is described as having, quote, the voice of an excited girl. That's very different from the commanding deep voice that Doug Bradley gifted the character. More, Barker wrote, quote, 
Every inch of its head had been tattooed with an intricate grid, and at every intersection of horizontal and vertical axes, a jeweled pin driven through to the bone. Its tongue was similarly decorated. End quote. I believe the Cenobite Butterball is here as well, though it is given a very brief description. Quote, Its features were so heavily scarified, the wounds nurtured until they ballooned, that its eyes were invisible and its words were corrupted by the disfigurement of its mouth. End quote. There's also one Cenobite that is clearly female, but there's no way any depiction of what Barker wrote would get past the MPAA. Barker envisions, quote, the woman beneath was gray yet gleaming, her lips bloody, her legs parted so that the elaborate scarification of her pubis was displayed. She sat on a pile of rotting human heads and smiled in welcome. End quote. Only one other Cenobite is given description, and it's one unlike has ever been realized on screen. It's described in the following passage, quote, Frank had difficulty guessing the speaker's gender with any certainty. Its clothes, some of which were sewn to and through its skin, hid its private parts, and there was nothing in the dregs of its voice or in its willfully disfigured features that offered the least clue. When it spoke, the hooks that transfixed the flaps of its eyes and were wed by an intricate system of chains passed through flesh and bone alike to similar hooks through the lower lip, were teased by the motion, exposing the glistening meat beneath. End quote. Meat. Barker does love that word, and flesh. They're great words for the theme Barker hits in his horror, that humans are just material that can be punctured. As seen here in the Hellbound Heart, flesh can be discarded and it can be traded. In Hellbound Heart, meat is used seven times, flesh fifteen. But if you look at the six books of blood, meat is said eighty times, flesh two hundred and six. But of more interest... In the movie, the Cenobites were certainly frightening. But in the book, when Frank meets them, their body modifications don't make them scary. They're weaker for the punishment their bodies have taken. Barker writes, quote, These decrepit descendants, with their stench, their queer deformity, their self-evident frailty, the only thing he had to fear was nausea. End quote. Each of those four Cenobites do have their analog in the film. The fifth, the engineer, is a bit more of a stretch. In Behind the Messines material, Barker described the wall-crawling, chomping monster in the movie as the Engineer. In the book, the Engineer is teased as the ultimate Cenobite, and it shows up only at the book's climax. It's barely described, but whatever it is, it's not the rubber monster on the rolly cart from the movie. In the film, the box opens, the Cenobites come, and then come the fish hooks and the chains. Graphic imagery. In the book, however, there is much more dialogue. It's actually an inconsistency in Barker's story, for here, at the beginning, the Cenobites offer Frank pleasure, but he has to accept that there's no going back. Once Frank offers himself to them verbally, then things turn for him. And it's not hooks that come. The movies are a bit weird in that the Cenobites claim to offer pleasure, but what you get is hooks and torn skin. In the book, this is a Faustian deal Frank takes and what he gets is a healthy dose of irony. Frank expected, quote, oiled women, milked women, women shaved and muscled for the act of love, their lips perfumed, their thighs trembling to spread, their buttocks weighty the way he liked them. He had expected sighs and languid bodies spread on the floor underfoot like a living carpet, had expected virgin whores whose every crevice was his for the asking, and whose skills would press him upward, upward, to undreamed-of ecstasies. 
end quote. That's not what he gets. Instead, the Cenobites change Frank's perceptions. His five senses are cranked up to 11. Everything he ever felt, heard, saw, smelled, or tasted was nothing compared to what the Cenobites turn him on to. So think about the satisfaction you get scratching an annoying itch, or the physical joy of a good orgasm. These things feel good, but weren't enough for Frank. Now his nerve endings on fire, any bit of physical pleasure he's had would be ramped up. Of course, I think it's pretty common for people to realize there's a fine line between pleasure and pain. A tickle can sometimes hurt if too extreme. That is what Frank gets. His senses on overload creates a torturous experience. This is a very internal experience, and one difficult to capture on film. Frank cries out in agony, but how could it be properly expressed in a movie that sight, smell, taste, feel were all-encompassing? Barker's prose here is wondrous. No narration I could provide you would do it justice, I fear. Read these pages, and you'll see a torture more perverse and satisfying than any shown before in a Hellraiser film. In a hope for escape from the assault, Frank masturbates there in the room. Obviously, that doesn't happen in the film, but in this story, it's actually an important key to what comes next. It's after this experience that Frank is taken into the Cenobite's realm, the doorway to which was opened in one of the walls in Frank's grandparents' house. He's not seen or heard from again, no trace of him is left in the house, and the house remains unoccupied for the best part of a year. If you read nothing else of the Hellbound Heart, this 19-page first chapter is worth a look. It functions as a self-contained short story, Frank's Faustian Deal. It has as much a prologue, body, and climax as several of the shorter tales in the Books of Blood. But it's with Chapter 2 that this short story becomes a novella, and disappointment sets in. The first chapter was so tight, it gave enough of Frank's backstory to explain who he was and what he wanted, the Cenobites were imaginative, and what's to follow is about 145 pages of ill-developed characters and flimsy motivations. There is good plot, and it moves fast, but it simply isn't as fulfilling because of all the things it doesn't do. First, let's look at our main character, and here is another difference from page to screen. With the movie, if I were to pick a main character, I'd say it was the innocent young woman named Kirsty, Ashley Lawrence's character. I'll get to the novella's version of Kirsty in a bit, but in the original short story, it's clear to me the main character is Julia Cotton. Julia is described as an incredibly beautiful woman. Her age isn't specified, but she's likely in her mid-twenties. She's thought of by most as sweet and endlessly desirable. Barker writes, quote, It seemed to Kirsty that the woman was incapable of ugliness. Every gesture, a stray hair brushed from the eyes with the back of the hand, dust blown from a favorite cup, all were infused with such effortless grace. End quote. This is a significant change from the film and Julia's portrayal by Claire Higgins. The actress is very elegant, but not supermodel gorgeous. And while Higgins was only 32 when Hellraiser was filmed, I thought she came across as older, closer in age to the 45-year-old actor who played her husband, Andrew Robinson. But in both film and on the page, Julia is rather underdeveloped. Does she have a job? Does she have friends? What does she do with her days? None of this is explained. All we do know is she's been married a bit over four years to a man named Rory. A man who, if she ever loved him, she doesn't anymore. Of Julia and Rory, Barger writes, quote, She wanted nothing that he could offer her, except perhaps his absence. End quote. 
And even with these problems, Julia is still the most fleshed-out character in the story. She is, strangely, our protagonist, and yet she is a villain. She's the one trying to accomplish a goal, and the one for whom forces stand in the way. It's not uncommon in Barker's early short stories to side with the villain like this. But much of the Hellbound Heart comes from her point of view, and the story is one created by her poor decisions, of which marrying Rory appears to be but one. Another poor decision by Julia was when she slept with Rory's older brother Frank mere days before her wedding. Frank had come into town for the ceremony, and instantly the two had an attraction. He took her atop her own bridal gown, with family friend Kirsty oblivious downstairs. The coupling is certainly some of what soured Julia on Rory, as sex with Frank has fueled her fantasies for years. The encounter was not romantic. Barker describes it as having, quote, In every regard but the matter of her acquiescence, all the aggression and the joylessness of rape. End quote. But being taken, the bruising, it ignited Julia's passion to such a point that she may have even left Rory at the altar choosing his brother. But the next day, Frank left town. He knew what Julia wanted, and he didn't. While others saw Julia's beauty and grace, Frank saw her as, quote, a trite preening woman whose upbringing had curbed her capacity for passion, end quote. Frank left town and hadn't been seen by Julia since. He hadn't thought of her in his seeking new extremes of pleasure, but Julia has elevated their encounter in her own mind to the height of ecstasy. We meet Julia in Chapter 2 when she and Rory are moving into the house left to both Rory and Frank. Again, this is a bit underdeveloped. Why are they moving? Did they live close to the house? Rory describes the house as abandoned for over three years. What prompts them to come now? I guess Barker does, as he wanted the story to be a bit of a haunted house tale. And the house is haunted. Something about the room where Frank performed his ritual calls to Julia. All signs of Frank had been gone. There were no jars of piss, no dove heads. The only sign Frank had been there are the blinds nailed to the window frame, and the neighbors talking of seeing Frank a year before. Julia dislikes the room, refusing its use as a master bedroom, but yet she must have felt Frank's presence there as she was drawn into the room again and again. She does this at times to escape from her husband Rory, our least important main character. Note that in the film, Rory's name was changed to Larry and aged to almost 50, but here, Rory Cotton is an everyman in his late 20s. He has a job that he goes to daily, though we don't know what. He has friends, though we don't know how. Yet Barker is intent on showing us that Rory is the exact opposite of his brother. Where Frank breaks every law and rule and is hell-bent on pushing boundaries, Rory is content in a crumbling marriage and a fixer-upper house. He's described as having dog-like adulation for Julia, though he's not developed enough to even be doting. Barker writes, quote, it was difficult for her to know in retrospect what was more comical about the episode, his weakness or the extravagance of his subsequent gratitude. End quote. Rory is so weak he can't even take the sight of his own blood, which is spilled when he cuts himself working on the house. This happens about one-third into the story. He goes to Julia for help, and in doing so, he bleeds on the floor of Frank's room. Then the magic begins. The sperm Frank left on the floor mixed with Rory's blood and opened a doorway through which Frank could slip. On Earth, Frank had eagerly eaten up rumors of another world where he could experience pleasure. Now trapped in that other world, he sought out other rumors. Rumors of escape from the Cenobites. The demons couldn't come to Earth to chase him. They had to be summoned. 
So Frank emerges from the walls, and in one of her trips to the room, he's found by Julia. But he's barely human. He's an eye, a spine, and a few other rotted bits. These were all ideas Barker took because he was a fan of the old Universal Pictures films of The Mummy. Having a dried, desiccated corpse seemed to him like the perfect start of this reanimation. But this Frank could see, and Frank could speak, though barely. What he says is, quote, Julia, it's Frank. Blood. That's all Julia needs. She somehow intuits that Rory's blood rose Frank, and more blood will bring him back further. Suddenly, her one night of lust turns her into thinking she was in love with Frank, and if blood was what he needed, that's what she'd get. And that is a hell of a leap for a character. A mid-twenties beauty with a fine upbringing, a woman so inactive that she won't leave a marriage in which she's miserable, to becoming a huntress? Julia would go to singles bars and lure men back to the house, to Frank's room, and she would graphically murder them. On screen, it plays better. There's more words spoken by Frank, more promises. Also, on the screen, an actor's facial expression can sell a scene and cover an improbable plot point. On the page, however, we have deep insight into the mind of a character. Julia is our primary point of view in this tight third-person narrative, and the only thing Barker gives us for motivation is Julia thinking, quote, If she could give him the sustenance he needed, would he not be grateful? Would he not be her pet, docile or brutal at her least whim? The thought took sleep away, took sanity and sorrow with it. End quote. So did she snap? Go insane? It does show that Julia and Frank should have run away together. They're perfect for each other, so centered only on their own wants and their own desires, both seeking to be in control, and through their attempts, they lose it. The second third of the book documents Julia's reunion with Frank, Frank growing stronger after each body Julia delivers. We're shown two seductions and murders, and it seems one or two more will cement Frank's escape and restore him to humanity, able to give Julia the physical pleasure she is craving. But the last third of the book, starting with chapter 9, changes perspectives. Suddenly, jarringly, Julia becomes a supporting character, and our main character is one that thus far had been so insignificant she hasn't even been worth mentioning. Kirsty. She's so undefined a character, she doesn't even have a last name. In the movie, she is actually Larry's daughter. Julia is her stepmother. Here, though, she is the same age as Julia and Rory and forms a love triangle that really goes nowhere. Now, I can't tell you much about Kirsty. Again, I don't know where she works. I don't know where she lives. I don't know her hobbies. She's every bit as ill-rendered and just about as weak as Rory. This is what I can tell you. Kirsty is a friend of Rory's, though I don't know where or how they met. She's a few years younger than Rory, she's 26 in the story, and she's been a close friend of Rory's since before the wedding. As I mentioned, she was on the first floor of a house assisting with wedding planning while Julia and Frank copulated upstairs. And Kirsty has an unrequited crush on Rory. She feels inferior to Julia in every way, and possibly feels undeserving of Rory's attentions but she keeps coming around like a stray cat whenever Rory calls. Kirsty had been a minor presence in the first two-thirds of the book. She and Julia were always at odds. Julia so elegant, and Kirsty described as a lost soul who had a, quote, dreamy, perpetually defeated manner. 
More, she was hapless, unable to even make coffee without it becoming an ordeal. I did laugh slightly at Barker's line, quote, Julia always looked at her so strangely, as if faintly baffled by the fact she hadn't been smothered at birth. End quote. Kirsty serves the writing in one way. She is the mirror opposite of Julia. Both women love a man they can't have. But while Julia longs for it, pines for it, and even kills for it, Kirsty simply remains a lovelorn good friend. Also, were it not for Kirsty, I'm not sure we, the reader, would care for Rory. Julia dislikes Rory, as does Frank, and they'd been our primary point-of-view characters. Kirsty is the sole character that seems to see Rory as having any value at all. More, this creates a love triangle between Julia, Rory, and Kirsty that is the exact opposite of Julia, Rory, and Frank. Julia and Frank consummate their love. Kirsty never tells Rory anything as Rory is such a puppy dog for Julia. Yet Kirsty still remains a background character, easy to forget for most of the book. But with Chapter 9, she's promoted to main character. A bit earlier, Rory had called Kirsty and proved himself to be the dumbest character in the story. While Julia has been bringing men home to kill, her change in attitude has made Rory worry for his wife. Completely unaware of the animosity between Julia and Kirsty, Rory actually asks Kirsty to go talk to and check up on his wife. And Kirsty, Rory's willing servant, agrees to the stupid errand, but arrives at the house as Julia brings home another victim. Kirsty mistakes this murder scenario for Julia having an affair, but Kirsty wants some proof or something. As unbelievable as it is that Julia would instantly jump to the I'm gonna murder for Frank solution, it's equally improbable that Kirsty would see cold, bitchy Julia take a suspected lover into her home, and Kirsty would then enter the house for further proof. Seriously, girl, just call Rory and let him deal with it. But no, unlawful entry is Kirsty's preferred solution. Instead of finding Julia in a lover's embrace, she finds Frank, now far more human, wearing bandages to keep his body together, again much like the mummy. And, for reasons I can't imagine, obsessed with fresh ginger. There's a giant jar of it that he demanded. I don't know if this was some part of a ritual or just a favored snack? Frank attacks Kirsty, but she is saved when she randomly grabs LaMarchand's box to use as a melee weapon. Frank's obsession with the box, and his fear that the box will open and the Cenobites will return to claim him, is what allows Kirsty to escape. And here come some of those inconsistencies I mentioned. In Chapter 1, we see Frank making lots of preparations for the Cenobites' arrival, working on the box for untold hours, and then verbally confirming his decision before the Cenobites take him. But in Kirsty's hands, the box opens easily. It's conveniently explained that blood on the box revealed its cracks, enabling her to slide it open. Then she is visited not by four Cenobites, but one, and it's shown he's not really there. When someone comes into Kirsty's room, they can't see this Cenobite. He exists, but only Kirsty is able to see him. Finally, the Cenobite, it's the one with hooks in its face, insists on taking Kirsty. She doesn't need to reaffirm her decision. In fact, the Cenobite knows in advance that Kirsty opened the box out of ignorance, but now Kirsty is subject to the same pleasure as Frank. And that leads to the climax of the story. It is a satisfying read. The events set in motion make logical sense, 
and the focus is on the action, making it easy to forget the two-dimensional characters that are going through the motions. If you've seen the movie, you know how the story ends, and if you don't, well, you can read the book. I'll keep the final spoilers a bit of a secret. I will mention that one change, though. The Engineer Cenobite. Teased in Chapter 1, he finally appears in the final chapter to do nothing. We're not given much description of him. He simply shows up as a bright light claiming Julia's body. Says, I am the Engineer. And nothing. Talk about unsatisfying. I feel like Frank, wondering if I open the box if I'll find more pleasure in an alternate ending where the engineer has adequate payoff. So as I close the cover on the book, I'm left where I often am with Barker's prose. The idea was so good, if not entirely original. Barker pulls from the tales of Faust and his own previous works to speed write this original screenplay in prose form. But Barker's imagery, his language, is vivid and engrossing in metaphor, if not in description of the actual monsters he creates. Truthfully, this book feels like it's in need of a rewrite. It was written in haste, which isn't unique. Barker often writes very fast, and it shows in lack of detail. This book is a fast read, and it's a fun read, but it's not a fulfilling read. In the end, to use the now-playing parlance, I can give the hellbound heart only a weak recommend. And I can tease you this, it is one of the rare cases where the movie is better than the book. When adapting his story to an actual screenplay, Barker tweaked elements of the story, changed some relationships. The makeup department gave flesh to Barker's fantasy. The actors brought reality and motivation to their characters. And with Hellraiser, Barker was mostly satisfied. He said it was the first time his fiction was translated to the screen, quote, the right way. Finally, end quote. But is it? That review will be coming soon from now playing to the donors who support our podcasting. If you want to hear Jacob Stewart and I review all nine, or will it be ten, Hellraiser films, head to nowplayingpodcast.com and click the donate banner at the top of the homepage. It's our gold donation series, and it starts November 6th. Before that, we did the entire Phantasm series for our silver level donation. Then we return to the Child's Play series with Cult of Chucky, which is our playing level donation. And finally, we'll end our donation series at the platinum level with three reviews of Jeepers Creepers. I know I speak for all of us at Now Playing when I say I hope you can join us. Open the box and hear these reviews. We have such sights to show you. And I'm going to be back over the next several weeks talking more Hellraiser in print. 28 years after writing The Hellbound Heart, Barker published The Scarlet Gospels, a novel where he put Pinhead up against Barker's magical detective, Harry Damour, the main character from the film Lord of Illusions. I haven't read the book yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing how the Cenobite's creator puts paid to his most famous creation. But wait, there's more! There's at least two other Hellraiser books I'll be covering. The first is called Hellbound Hearts. Published in 2009, this book has 21 short stories based on the Hellraiser mythos. They're not written by Barker, but there are some notable names in here, including Mick Garris, the director of the Stand miniseries, as well as some less notable works that we've covered on Now Playing, Mike Mignola, creator of Hellboy, Peter Atkins, the man who worked with Barker on the first Hellraiser film and then scripted parts 2 through 4, Simon Clark, Nicholas Vance, and Barbie Wilde, 
All actors who played Cenobites in the Hellraiser films have stories here. And there's even one by Neil Gaiman, writer of the Sandman comics and the novels Stardust, American Gods, and Coraline. That's some interesting people involved, and I look forward to tearing into it. More, there's a new Hellraiser book coming in January of 2018 called Hellraiser The Toll. It's based on a story by Clive Barker, but it's written by Mark Allen Miller, a friend of Barker's who's written several Hellraiser comics and who worked on the Cabal Cut and the Director's Cut of Nightbreed. It's described as a book that bridges the events of the Hellbound Heart and the Scarlet Gospels. It involves Pinhead's preparations for the events of the Scarlet Gospels, and it will feature the return of Kirsty. Though if she'll be Larry's daughter or Rory's unrequited crush, I don't know. So you can look for those upcoming releases on booksandnachos.com. Plus, Stuart promises me he'll be back with reviews of the rest of the Dune Saga and more. If you're looking for more to read, please do check out the now-playing book of movie reviews, Underrated Movies We Recommend. The ebook is out now, the audiobook is in production, and the hardback will hopefully be coming in the next couple of months. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please come to our forums. And I hope to see you all comment on Now Playing's Hellraiser movie reviews. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in hell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. And Kirsty has an unrequited crush on Corey. And Kirsty has an unrequited crush on Corey. And Kirsty has an unrequited crush on Rory.